Greetings and welcome to Visibility with your host, Dr. Donna Maria Culbreth. You may call us to share your thoughts, pose a question, or to give a general comment by dialing area code 323-642-1562. And now, Dr. Culbreth. Everyone and welcome to Visibility. Actually, it's we're into episode three of our mini series, Our Voices, Our Stories. And today's episode, we are going to be talking about on being our sisters' keepers, which is something that is so important. The focus of the show, and I'll read the description to you, is going to be on, you know, how women of color act, react, and interact with each other how they embrace each other and move within and around each other personally, academically, and professionally. And some of the topics that we're going to discuss tonight include being jealous um, and being envious, race and color, mixed race identity issues, unity. We're going to focus on loving our sisters, supporting each other through the good, bad, and ugly moments, which we all know we experience. We're going to look at interracial and intraracial unity among women of color. So when I say that, listeners, I'm saying it from the perspective that we talk about all being women of color. You know, normally basically talking about black, Latino, Asian, women, Indian. But the, the issue or the question that I have is, is there really a unity between with black and Latino women Asian and black women, Asian and, Latin, and Indian, is a unity there as women of color where they will stand up, be their sister's keepers, keepers, support them in unity. So that's something else we're going to take a look at. We will also discuss the need to protect each other when people give you the evil eye, the glares, negativity about being, you know, blood sisters as well. We're also going to focus in on issues experienced by women of color in the workplace. And the reasons why we embrace, you know, our girls and women of color. So the theme of this show actually falls under um, the embracing portion of our voices, our stories. Now, our guests tonight include authors who are contributors to our the National Girls and Women of Color Council's anthology, Our Voices, Our Stories, an anthology of writings. Advancing, celebrating, embracing, and empowering girls and women of color. Now, the anthology will be available for purchase in April, and the link will be available either later tonight or tomorrow morning on the website of the National Girls and Women of Color Council. So we're excited. We're thrilled that you'll be able to have that book in your hands in a few weeks. So first, let me begin by introducing our guests, which I will do so in alphabetical order. Our first guest is Dr. Rebecca George. Dr. George is currently serving as a clinical coordinator for Webster University's counseling program at the Columbia Metropolitan Campus. She has been with the university since 2007. She earned a master of science degree in rehabilitation counseling from the SC State University in 2000 and earned her PhD in counsel education from the University of South Carolina in 2007. Dr. George is a licensed professional counselor, licensed professional counsel supervisor, 
as well as a licensed addiction counselor. Our next guest is Dr. Alexandria Smith. Dr. Smith is a South Carolina State Counseling Coordinator for Webster University. She earned a Master of Education degree in counseling from the University of Georgia in 2001. She earned a Ph.D. in counselor education from the University of South Carolina in 2007. Dr. Smith is a nationally certified counselor, a licensed professional counselor, as well as a licensed addiction counselor. And Dr. Drs. George and Smith submitted a poem to the anthology, Our Voices, Our Story, titled Black Girl Glare, and I fell in love with it. And um, it's wonderful. Our next guest is Ms. Bethany Loper. Ms. Loper is a native of Wilmington, Delaware, and currently resides in Newcastle, Delaware, with her family. She's an award-winning poet and author and is currently working on her first novel in poetry. Ms. Loper submitted the following submissions to the anthology, Our Voices, Our Stories. Makidara, which means little sister, healing prayer, and unfillable spaces. Ladies, welcome to Visibility. Hello, thank and thank you. Hello. Awesome. We're very awesome. excited to be here. And I, and I just realized that um, Drs. Smith and uh, George are in South Carolina, and I have to talk to you about something about that later or remind me. Okay, we will. That. Okay, so ladies, first let me say to each of you, thank you so much for submitting your writings to the anthology. Um, because of you and authors like you, we are able to do what, we, what we've done with the anthology. So first let me say thank you all very much. Thank you. This was an honor. Thank you. Thank so you. Just, you're more than welcome. Let's start off with this. Um, I'll start with you first, Ms. Loper. Mm-hmm. My question, and the same question I'll post to each, each, to each author, what moved you to write your particular submissions, especially Maki Dada, Little Sister? Okay. Great question. So um, to start with Little Sister, um, what really moved me to write that is that we forget that as black women we come in all different shapes, sizes, colors, flavors, and styles. Right, so my challenge as I was younger was that you know I acted too white, I talked white, and I just didn't fit in with the prototype of other young girls that were raised in the city just like me. Um, I had very strict old school parents, so I just turned out to be a different type of young lady than those that I grew up with. Um, so that piece kind of covered my feelings um, on on that topic. With healing prayer, it kind of just speaks to the spiritual recession that we go into after we separate from somebody. When I separated from my husband, I literally felt like I was in mourning, and I didn't know what else to do besides pray. Um, so that piece is just kind of my prayer for healing and to get through that the rebuild and rebuilding me, making myself feel confident and making myself feel whole and, you know, getting back to me so that I could move forward with, with my life and be the be- the best me that I could possibly be. Um, so, yeah, that pretty much speaks to my pieces. Good. Dr. Uh, Rebecca, Dr. Rebecca um, George and Alexandria Smith, what moved you to write um, 
black girl glam? Well, you know, I have to confess that initially um, Dr. George would often ask me, what is it that we do as black women? She said, have you ever walked into a room and basically you get this look where um, other black women gaze at you from head to toe? And I can remember specifically dismissing her and saying, you know, Dr. George, you're just being hypersensitive. I think that black women are fashionistas. They're checking out what you have on, the labels. And she's like, she's like, no, it's more than that. And it wasn't until she called it out and called attention to it. And then subsequently thereafter, I felt it. Um, we were actually conducting a group interview. And we walked into the room, and one of the women of color in there did it. And it had nothing to do with what I had on. She wasn't checking out my outfit. It was literally a glare. And when we stepped out of the room to allow them to work in small groups, I shared with her, I said, I get it now. And she said, get what? I said, it's not a gaze. It's not a stare. It's a combination therein. It's a glare. I said, it's a black girl glare. And she was like, yes, that's it. And so when we got your call for submissions, she was like, you know, we really need to submit a poem around that. And I just started writing, and I asked her, is this capturing what you're feeling, what you've experienced? And she said, yes, this is it. And so that was kind of like the catalyst for us to submit the poem. Of course, you having the idea for this anthology and making space for it uh, primarily, and then, of course, us feeling it and experiencing it and wanting to call attention to it in hopes of quelling it. I agree, because I, I can tell you this, I have experienced it so many times and my response is because you know as black women I think we need to be more on a united front and stop that the glaring and the yeah. give you the evil eye yeah. and I had moved myself to a point and some of my friends laugh at this if I was out somewhere if I was giving like a presentation even just like in the grocery store mm -hmm. walking up the block you happen to look up and you're getting that glare, and I know exactly what you mean. And at first, you know, I would often ignore it, and then it would move to the point where you were getting bumped with grocery wagons intentionally, or they follow you up and down the aisle in the store and just keep, you know, it's that glare. So this was years ago when I started doing this. It would annoy me to no end. So I would look at them and say, oh, hello, how are you? And then they would just look at me as if they didn't hear anything. And finally, mm -hmm. one day, I started you know, why don't you take a picture? It'll last longer. And my husband said to me, you can't do things like that. And I said, do you want to make a... I said, because there's no need for that. It's that glare, like, who do you think you are? Or yeah. that that envious, jealous thing. And then an older woman had told me about something called the evil eye. Mm -hmm. And they're probably giving you the evil eye. And I'm like, really, for what? And yeah. I... You know, I, and like Miss Loper noted earlier, I was raised old school. My parents were very old school, very strict, um, no-nonsense type of parents. So mm -hmm. I was raised, go to school, mind your business, go to college, get your education, do well in life, keep your nose clean, be nice to everybody you meet. And what I have found as a black woman, even just trying to, to operate the National Girls and Women of Color Council here in, or in the city, in Jersey City, 
Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm reaching out saying, listen, there's absolutely nothing in this city, for, especially for black girls. They need so much help. And I was getting the glare, and I'm saying to myself, OMG, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. And and the problem is that you, you experience the glare to such, sometimes it's such a magnitude, and it just becomes pathetic and sickening. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, what are your thoughts? I was going to say that, hmm. mm-hmm. she said, what are your thoughts? Oh, I was going to share that it gets so intense till the energy even in the room changes um, or the energy in that space changes because they're so intentional with the glare, with the stare, with the the hatred that they're projecting onto you. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're not mindful enough to notice, okay, wait a minute, it's not about me. They have some real trauma that's going on that they're projecting out into the world. Mm-hmm. But, you know, of course, in the midst of that moment, you're just angry and bothered by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, exactly. Ms. Loper, what are your thoughts? Have you experienced that glare? I have most definitely. Um, I think that every black woman can say the same thing. It almost makes you wonder to the point where, okay, does she know me from somewhere? Did I do <laughs> something? To, did I say something to her? Did I look at her the wrong way? Um, and I think the best way that we can kind of combat that is just to continue with projecting that positive energy. You know, I think that we have to do a better job to spread that positivity. And then also it could be that RBF, right, because sometimes we just have that look on our face, and they say that about us often, being black women, even, you know, at the office. What are you mad about? Why do you look like that? And I'm like, I'm just sitting here living. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know? So, you know, speak to her. Ask her how she's doing. How's your day going? It could just possibly be that that's how she looks. That's her face. But, no, sometimes it is most definitely valid, and it is that black girl glare. So, absolutely, I second you guys on that. You know what my question is? What is the point in doing that? I mean, really, like, on a realistic level, what is the point of giving me the glare? When the glare, what what do you hope to accomplish? You know, I think it, I, I'm sorry. I was going to say. I, I was going to say. I think you already hit the nail on the head because that's what I felt when I entered that room. It was like, who do you think you are? And I think as women, especially women of color, black women, we have been socialized to believe that there is not room for all of us to be great. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I believe that we feel threatened mm-hmm. if we perceive someone else as believing in their own greatness. Mm-hmm. So in essence, the internalized oppression shows up. So, you know, we walk around with, we receive messages from the media, from the newspaper, from, for for lack of a better word, sometimes from our own partners Mm -hmm. that tell us that we're not good enough, that we're not pretty, or we're not whatever the negative term might be. And we start to believe it. And because we believe it, and when we see someone else, like Dr. Smith said, shining or glowing, we are pissed as well. Mm-hmm. And so we project that um, that anger towards them. How dare you be, um, you know, be excited to be a black woman in this world when I'm feeling this way? Why don't you feel the way that I feel? Exactly. You're so you're so right. Because I've and, I, and this is one thing I said at a conversation with some friends a couple of weeks ago. And I was saying to them, I said, you know what, it's enough. I have enough load of a load to bear as being a black mm-hmm. woman, you know, trying to. Mm-hmm. I, we always have to go the extra mile no matter what it is that you do. And mm-hmm. and I said to them, I said, you know what, I am getting so tired, uh, 
works harder. And it doesn't matter how great what you do, you're always under treated differently. And my point was, and this is what I said to her, and I don't think she liked it, but because I've seen her give people glares too. And I said, that's what started the conversation. She glared at a woman who walked into the restaurant. And I said, why did you do that? Mm-hmm. And she said, I, and I said, you just looked at her like you wanted to rip her heart out or you're as if it was like mm-hmm. this jealous rage just came up in you about this woman who, and the woman, you know, she looked nice. And I'm like, this, if a woman looks good and they have it going on, them their props. And wait, mm-hmm. said, it's enough burden that we have to deal with racism, being negatively stereotyped in the media and the workplace just in society in general, and we don't need that added baggage from our own women and within our own race, racial care, you know, who rather doing, treating us nasty or being rude or ignorant or disrespectful, however you want to label it. Enough is mm-hmm. enough. Why? And, and I say this to all of you before we even go any further. You continue, like, um, on Monday night we held a show and Miss. Kimberly Walker, who's an author, and she's a geologist. She made she said something was so you know something I always remember. She said you keep letting your light shine. You let mm-hmm. your light shine. You know they can glare all they want because to me the work that all of us are doing, your work, it's who you are. And if somebody mm-hmm. has a problem because I'm giving a presentation or I take the time to fix myself up and take pride in my appearance. Mm-hmm. And you're angry with me because obviously, and, you, and tell me if I'm wrong. I'm saying this is my theory on this. You're looking at me, and you automatically know that I look good, and you believe mm-hmm. that I look better, or I'm smarter, prettier, better body, better clothes, whatever the heck it may be. And I think that shows a, a lack of insecurity in themselves, and and their level of self-love, esteem, their mm-hmm. self-pride. Yeah. You know their own identity and their mm-hmm, own self. Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you think? Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, low self-esteem, lack of confidence, um, just in general, self-hate is being displayed. That—that's really what they're all saying when you when they give that glare. Mm-hmm. And and you would be surprised, maybe you all wouldn't, as I certainly am, mm-hmm. about how early it starts. Mm-hmm. You know, my my daughter is eight years old. And she came home, even when she was younger, she might have been like in first grade, this might have been last year, and she said, "Um, Mommy, Ebony said she almost didn't speak to me today because I had on new shoes. Mm. Now... Now, from from the from the mouths of of babes will the truth flow. So Ebony was at least honest enough and courageous enough to say this is how she was feeling. But I think what happens is as we get older, you know, we realize that I can't say this, so I'm just going to silently project this, you know, with this glare. You're right. You're so right. I'll tell you something. Well, I've seen it with young girls, and I found it disturbing. And this is before I moved to Jersey. I was in a Home Depot, and I'm like the um, the GI Jane when it comes to home renovations. This is before I hurt my back. I used to, you know, like doing home renovations and going there and picking up stuff. And I remember walking up and down the aisle, and I was raised like my, the way my parents raised me. You present your best self to the world. You don't mm-hmm. go out of your house on the back of your shoes. Your hair is neat and combed. You look presentable, clean cut. Show you have respect and pride in who you 
11, maybe 11 years old. And she was with her mother. And her mother stopped and gave me the glare. I mean, it was like the kind mm. of a rip your heart out type of glare. Wow. But this is what was so sad about it. The little girl did not see her mother say she was behind the mother. Do you know that the little girl gave me that same glare? Mm. Oh, my yeah. goodness. I'm saying, mm-hmm. wait a minute, honey. You have your mm-hmm. whole world ahead. You have your youth. You're, you're young. And here I am, an old, not old, but I mean an older woman, mature woman. <laughs> and it's a little girl doing that. And I think, like you said, it does start young. Mm-hmm. It does. Mm-hmm. I have to that- agree. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I was just going to add to that point, you know, I think that you guys are on to something when you say that it starts at home and it starts young. Um, I'm a dark-skinned lady, and my mother embedded in me from a very young age, you're beautiful, you're smart, you know, you can go far in life, you can do anything that you want to do. And I think that if we um, ingrain our young women in this and train them up and raise them to think that way about themselves, mm-hmm. then they'll put that energy onto other people, number one. And number two, if you're focused on yourself and what you can do to better yourself and go further, you're not going to be worried about giving somebody a glare because you're jealous of them. You have to focus on yourself and understand your beauty, and then you're able mm-hmm. to show that to other people, and it just carries on, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So let me ask you this. Why is it important when we start looking at you know, the anthology and writing and narratives, why is it important for the voices and stories of girls, teens, and women of color to be heard? Um, mm-hmm. Doc, mm-hmm. Uh, that question is directed to Dr. George. Oh, my apologies. <laughs> um well, in general, I think representation matters. And just like we talked about earlier, black women historically the most unsupported and underserved people, population basically. Mm-hmm. And so we have to basically step in and provide that support for ourselves and one another. And I think that starts with representation. That starts with changing the narrative, changing the images that we see. So I think that's a very important place to begin. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Dr. Smith, what are your thoughts? I just think oftentimes there is, and I could be completely off, maybe it's just me, but it's sometimes I get the feeling that the expectation is that black women like our work, there's an expectation for our work to be visible, but not necessarily for us to be visible and even audible. what 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 stands out for me sometimes is on the movie Twelve Years a Slave, um, when um, Solomon Northrop was of course taken into slavery. Um, I remember he was taken to a different plantation to work off a debt of some sort, and because he got into it with that particular slave um, or plantation overseer they were going to hang him. But someone intervened, perhaps the sheriff, I think, and was saying that this is not your property. We have to go get his master. Don't touch him until we get back. But, of course, they left him in the noose. So he's hanging there until his master arrives. And I've seen that movie several times, but the last time what stood out for me was how this black woman tipped into the scene with a canister of water, this this tin can of water, gave him the water, his hands are tied behind his back, gave him the water, and then quietly tipped back out of sight. 
And oftentimes I feel like that's the, the role that black women are expected to play. Like we come in, we save the day, but it ends up being a thankless job. And again, the expectation is that we don't say anything about it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I constantly feel like we're coming to the rescue. And so we need a safe place to be able to talk about these issues and to finally have our say. I agree so much. Ms. Loper, what are your thoughts? Well, first I want to say that was so beautifully put. You did an awesome job with that. I don't even know if I can add anything to that, but I'm definitely going to try. Um, Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so I had mentioned earlier when we were chatting, you know, there's very few platforms out there where we can kind of share our stories with each other and with the world without feeling filtered, you know, without feeling like we have to put a lid on how we really want to say things. Um, And like any other group of people, we need to know that we're out there for each other. And, you know, there's people out there like us that we can share our stories with and somebody will understand, Um, you know, and that's why I think this is the perfect chance to to do that. I do wonderful responses. So let me move on to what I'm going to go in this direction. We know that black girls and women, like, and I noted earlier, we often carry a double, you know, and sometimes a triple load as we travel on our journeys. And sometimes our loads become too much to bear. They really do. And I'm a believer that it's during these overload times that we need the support of our sisters in the village and for our listeners, when I'm talking about the village, I'm talking about the African proverb that it takes a village, you know, the mentality there. Yeah. Yeah. So we need that village to sustain us. And standing in unity and supporting us, this is also means that we have to literally be prepared to stand up, to speak out, and take action to address, you know, among all these other issues, the disparate treatment that continues to stagnate the growth and the progress of girls and women of color in society. So my question to all of you is, and we'll start with you, Ms. Loper, what mm-hmm. does being our sister's keeper mean to you? Um, so I took a very simple view on this. Um, I, I simply put, I just think that we need to support each other because no one else really does. Um, and I can tell you, you know, I have two kids, and when they fuss at each other, they're calling each other stupid names, I tell them, look, there's going to be enough people out here in this world trying to drag you down, drag your name through the mud, make you feel less than a person. We don't need to be doing that to each other in this house. You know, we need Mm -hmm. to support each other and lift each other up. Um, Also, I think that an opportunity um, with us as black women is to be able to check each other in love, um, if you will. Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, when we mess up or we do things or we don't always represent ourselves the best way that we could, we discipline each other in such a public way, and then it's magnified, and we get this perception that we don't support each other, we're nasty, we glare, you know, we rip each other down, we have attitudes, angry black woman. We need to really do a better job of just uplifting each other and, you know, trying to correct each other in a way that, is not damaging. I agree. I agree. Dr. Smith, what are your thoughts? That's actually an excellent segue into what I was going to say. For me, being my sister's keeper means learning to love in spite of. 
So mm-hmm. in spite of glare, in spite of the misconceptions, like I'm going to love you in any way, even if that means when I receive the glare, what you get back from me is a smile, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and just doing whatever I can to meet a person where she might be because we are all experiencing some type of struggle or storm and there are more common denominators and similarities in those storms than there are differences. Um, And so that's what sort of being my sister's keeper means for me. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, I would like to share that um, for me being my sister's keeper is probably a little more visceral. I'm very much similar to what the other ladies have shared, but um, I'm very touchy-feely, so I demonstrate my being my sister's keeper in a way of um, simply giving a compliment when I feel it. I don't hold it to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, if I see someone with fabulous big hair, I'm going to say it. If you have some gorgeous skin, I'm going to share it with it. Now, often I get the glare back, but I spoke my truth and I shared it because I didn't want to keep that compliment or that positivity um because I never know what that might do for someone else. I know what it do for me if I heard it. So I feel like I make an intention. I'm very intentional in sharing those types of things. So that's how I project my being a sister's keeper, if you will. And, and you know, also along those same lines, you would be surprised, even though that glare seems to in real time only last but a millisecond, it can still be a teachable moment because yeah. you, because you would be surprised how if you are feeling the glare and you give a smile, you almost give that person permission mm-hmm. to say, we can accept each other, yes. you know, mm-hmm. and, and it sort of humanizes the awkwardness of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's true. I remember um, with me, and, and, and I always follow it too, Dr. George, when if I'm out somewhere and if I see someone and, I, you know, your hair is great, you have a great outfit, your skin, I will give you your props and, you know, give you that compliment. Yes, and it's okay. It doesn't take away from you or me. Exactly. And I'm like, well, I love your hair or give me those shoes or, you know, something <laughs> that, you know, and it forces them to smile because I was at a um, presentation about maybe it was in October, November of last year, and a woman walked in and she had an, all this gorgeous outfit and the shoes now because of my back, I can't wear high heels, so I just admire your heels and tell you I love them. So she walked by, of course, there was the glare, and I said, are you kidding me? So when she passed me again, I said, I love that outfit and those shoes. I said, why don't you just take them off, and I'll find a way of making them fit me. And she started smiling and started laughing, and we ended up having mm-hmm. a great conversation. But mm-hmm. then she, later on, you know, when I looked at you, I said to myself, there's one of those sisters. And I said to her, well, what, is, what, are, what do you mean by one of, one of those sisters? What, who are we? And she said, you know, you're very confident. You know, everything's impeccable. You're so well put together. And I'm saying, but what, what is your point? Because I'm still not grasping what, you know, I think I kind of knew what she was saying. I just wanted to force her to say it. And mm-hmm. so I said, well, what are you talking about? And she said, you know, all together, so confident. And then she said to me, I have, I lack self-confidence. Oh, wow. And I'm like, really? Well, I've never had an issue with confidence because, you know, like we all know that the way, you know, you were raised, to, you know, my parents always said, you know, you're smart, you're beautiful. And my dad used to love the song Young, Gifted, and Black. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nina Simone. Nina Simone used to always, there was, you are 
gifted and black little girl. You are like, you know, you're like the apple pie and ice cream. You're the, you know, he always made us growing up believe in ourselves and that you're, you're gorgeous, you're fabulous, you're smart, you're intelligent. And it's funny because growing up, you know, maybe this is just me, because I was always like a little tomboy in a sense. I never looked in the mirror and said, oh, you're so pretty or you're gorgeous. I just fixed myself up because my mom was like, comb your hair, make sure your outfit is neat. You present the best version of you to the world. So as you're growing up, you don't think, well, at least I didn't. I didn't think about that. I was, you know, when I was, say, up into the eighth grade, I wasn't thinking about being cute or pretty. And I don't remember ever being jealous of another girl, like looking mm. at them and and being jealous. And I don't know if that's because we were too busy or too focused on other things. I do remember some of the girl, black girls in school who wanted to fight you for no reason. Yes. I will never forget. <laughs> she was two years older than me, and there were some other type of bully girls. And they would come up to me and say, I'm going to fight you today after school. <laughs> and I'm like, you're uh-huh. fighting me for, you know, I don't fight with people. And I would uh-huh. blow them off. You know, I'm not going to tell you the words I would say, but I'd be like, so and so, you're crazy. I don't have time for this. And it used to uh-huh. annoy me because I didn't really pay it any mind, you know, because you're younger. You know, we would get out of school and we'd have to take, you know, public transportation like a regular bus, not a school bus home. I would walk to the corner, have my little bus ticket, my books, and get on the bus. And I dared you to come across and start some crap with me. Uh-huh. And. And it was just the fact that I got so tired of, of girls always saying, I'm going to fight you, or I'm uh-huh. going to beat you, I'm going to kick your so-and-so. I'm like, yeah, but for what? Did uh-huh. I take any? Did I come at you first? And then as I got uh-huh. older, and you would see more of it, especially with the glare thing, I remember my reaction would be, and my sister's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you say this. But I tell people, you do not want to come for me unless I send for you. And if I say, yep. <laughs> and it's so funny, and I actually had to tell someone this one time, and I said to her, you don't want to come for me unless I send for you, and here's something you want to remember. If I send for you, you better think twice before coming, because mm-hmm. we're not on that kind of time. We're not friends. We're not associates. We're not colleagues, and you're coming at me for no reason. Then right. you need to be prepared for what my reaction may be to you. And mm-hmm. and I said, you know, I've never had a physical fight. I would never put my hands on anyone, but I just have zero tolerance for that type of what I can I consider that complete utter ignorance. I'm mm-hmm. too busy with trying to do me and my writing and research and projects and work to be caught up in this. And what I never could, you know, pinpoint, especially when I was younger. Why do girls do this? Until, you know, you get older, you realize it's a jealousy thing. They have an mm-hmm. issue because they, they think you're cute. And I remember one time when a girl said to me, you think you're cute, you think you're pretty. And I'm like, I, you think I'm pretty. And I turned it on. That's what it was. And then I got like a little big head. I'm like, wow, I'm pretty or I'm cute. <laughs> and, you know, because you're, um, you're young kids then. And it was so funny, but I learned to turn it on them. And when mm-hmm. they would come up to you and say little things, and it's it's just always been annoying to see mm-hmm. how how black girls do that. You know, other racial groups may do the same thing. I haven't noticed it as much, but it probably 
does exist. I don't think it's to the magnitude that it is with our growth. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it probably does exist, but I don't think it has it is as impactful or harmful as it is for us. We don't have the room or the space for this type of negativity amongst each other. We just don't have the space for it. So yeah. yeah, because the world does it to us, yeah. but they may not do it to the other ethnicities. They don't, yeah. You know, and, and so we can't do it to each other and have the world doing it to mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, I think I agree. we were talking about being supportive of one another and um, black women being the basically the mules of the, of the world. We, mm-hmm. we, we carry everyone on our back. We cape for everyone, but there's no one to cape for us. So we basically need to care for each other at this point. Exactly. We do. Mm-hmm. I agree. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I can't say that, you know, for sure whether we have any more or less unity than, than other races, but, you know, when, when we do fall out, when we do argue, when we do fight, ours seems to be magnified. And you mm-hmm. see it in media, you see mm-hmm. it in social media. The first thing that comes to mind is um, – basketball wives, right? Mm. Then you got mm-hmm. um hip hop wives or something like that. It just becomes so intense. I'm, I have to turn this mess off because mm-hmm. it just becomes too much. And then that's where that perception comes from that we're nasty, we don't support each other, this, that, and the third. So right. you know, that's why I'm such an advocate of if you do disagree with something that your sister is saying, have that, that disagreement, have that moment in private and learn to communicate. We need to learn to communicate and talk to each other about what is wrong um, because, you know, the the young women are seeing this, the, the teenagers, the young girls, and they're seeing it without any context, right? So they're just imitating what they're seeing, and then that's how we're seeing this cycle. So, right. you know, we, we have to do a better job of that. Agree. And, you I know, um, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please continue. I was just going to say that's another thing that Dr. George and I had sort of had a debate about one time. And I was like, well, you know, Dr. George, there, you know, you have the Real Housewives of New Jersey, you have the Mob Wives, yada, 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 and they have Caucasian women. And she was like, yeah, but it sticks to us more. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I can see that now because it's already being perpetuated um, that, you know, we're, as um, as was stated earlier, that we're the angry black woman. And so that's what people want to see anyway, um, is those stereotypes being reinforced. Whereas with, when you have reality shows and they maybe have Caucasian women doing the same things, then they are considered the exception. But at the end of the day, they're still ladies, mm-hmm. whereas we get termed something different. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Absolutely. I can, I can, um, and, and this is what bothered me, maybe I think it was last year. I was in the grocery store going down the frozen food aisle, and I was looking for the regular broccoli florets. I don't like the steam kind. I don't like the kind with the little stem. I just, I want a certain type. So when I turned to come in the aisle, my wagon's on the left side. There's nobody on the aisle but me. So I'm moving the wagon slowly with one one hand while I'm looking at all the little freezers, looking for the type of broccoli I wanted. So I'm walking, and all of a sudden my wagon went bang, you know, softly. It hit another wagon. And I looked up. I said, oh, I didn't see you there. Excuse me. 
black woman who was very unattractive, and she said, <laughs> you, you know, you hit my wagon deliberately, and I'm like, no, ma'am, I didn't. And she said, um, you know, she wanted to stand there and start this confrontation over my wagon banging the front of her wagon when I didn't even see you. But my point is, so I said to her, I said, Miss, I really did not see you coming up the aisle. And she said, you did. So I said, you know what, you're ignorant. I don't have time for this. And normally, ladies, I wouldn't react to someone on this level. But I was not in the mood for having it that day. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying to myself, I said, are you going to be this? And this is what I said, this freaking ignorant and petty to stand here. So I said, I'm trying to get to the rest of the freezer here. She would not move. I'm not moving. And I said, let me ask you a question. Did you see me? My hair's a honey blonde color. I said, did you see me standing here with this wagon and walking and not looking, you know, ahead? You had to see me. Why didn't you just move over? Mm. And she, no, she proceeded to go into this real ignorant dialogue, and I'm like, good God, Miss Agnes. So I, she wouldn't move her wagon, so I took the front of my hand, I stepped around my wagon, and I pushed her wagon, you know, out so I could get to the freezer where I finally saw the broccoli. And she goes, don't you touch my wagon. Don't you dare touch my wagon. I mean, she just went ballistic, crazy. And I'm not going to tell you what I said to her because you'll think I'm really mean. Rest <laughs> uh, assured, I handled it. And to make a you know, long story really short, this woman never purchased one thing. She didn't take anything out of the freezer on that aisle. It was just, uh-huh. you know, to be non, you know, ignorant and ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And, so, and then I said to her, I said, you know what, miss? And I turned around after I moved her out of my way. And I said, you know what, let me just say this one thing to you. I said, I've dedicated my life's work to addressing the issues that affect girls and women of color, specifically black women. I said, because we are not in a position in the society that we live in, which is so plagued with racism, disparate treatment, and negative stereotypes of specifically black girls, our teens, and our women. I said, you, women like you, cause the problems that I'm trying to solve, I'm trying to work on, I'm trying to find ways that we can address these issues. I said, but my life's work is what I, is, is focusing on all these, these little, you know, trying to stop us from treating each other this way. And I said, you want to know what's bad? I said, did you ever see the movie Crash? Now, by this time, this woman's probably literally ready to rip my eyes out of my, my, my head. So she's blowing up like a, I've seen it. I said, do you remember the scene in there where it was a married guy who was having problems with his wife? But anyway, this young guy tried to steal his truck. And in the end, he helped the guy get away from the police. And he said to the young man in the end, before he let him out of his truck, he said, look at me. And the young man went and looked and he said, look at me. And he looked, finally the young boy looked at him and he said, when you embarrass me, you embarrass yourself. Mm-hmm. And that was all he needed. So when I said that to her, she goes, so what, what are you saying? I said, I'm saying to you is that you came at me wrong with an attempt, I guess, to embarrass me or cause drama. I don't know what your, your, you know, your MO is. I said, but you embarrassed yourself because you are exactly how white people and other people are not, you know, not people of color say how we act and how we treat each other. Yes. And I said, you just, the narrative of that stereotype of how they portray us to be nasty, mean, jealous.
journey in this world to be a better woman. And I walked mm-hmm. away. Her mouth could her chin, her mouth dropped open where literally, I'm not, I know I'm exaggerating a bit, like her chin could hit the floor. Mm-hmm. Because somebody had to tell her that. Be a better woman. You know, there's no need for us. That was such a petty, ridiculous incident. When yeah. she wanted to start an issue over nothing because my wagon mm-hmm. bumped yours because I wasn't looking. Now, yes, I should have been looking where I was going, but when I came on the aisle, the aisle was empty. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think what frustrates me about those situations is I begin to ponder and ask myself, how would this person have handled things differently had I been a white man or a white woman or even a black man? Would it have been the same exchange? And if not, then why not? Why is it that I don't get the same respect? Exactly. That's a great point. That's a great that point. Because we to add to that, I think that, you know, even though it wasn't an overall pleasant experience that you had with this lady, I think that there was some progress made, whether you knew it or not. Her light bulb may have came on at a later point, but if she stayed long enough to engage you in that conversation and answer your questions when you asked her had she seen this movie so that you could really break it down to her, she had to have heard some truth in what you were saying. So that's the good part from that. And I think I think, I think she also made a comment. She said, I'm retired. I don't have to work. I don't work. And I'm like, okay, so you don't work. You want a cookie or a medal? Like, why am I supposed to care that you're, you're retired? <laughs> You know, and you don't work, and I'm like, okay, so you don't work. What's so great about, I mean, I'm happy for you. I wish I could say that, but I have to work. And I'm saying to myself, this woman, I think she was in such a rage just from her looking at me. She didn't like my appearance. It bothered her. And and maybe that's what she's used to. But you're right. I think the light, she had a, it was a teachable moment. Mm-hmm. And then I saw a couple months later, I think it was in maybe December or January, I saw her in there again, and she looked at me, and I said, how are you doing today, my friend? <laughs> and, you, know, you know, and I just said it to mess with you know, and she had to smile. I love it. And I, we passed each other on the bread aisle, and I was there looking at the bread, and she walked by me, and she said, well, I guess I should to return the favor and ask you how you're doing. I said, I'm doing just great. I said, isn't it nice we can have a conversation as two black women without having to spar? You know what? That day I saw you, I looked at your honey blonde hair, and I said, she ain't got no right as a black woman wearing honey blonde hair. I don't care what color your skin is. And that's when I had to give her my speech about hair. And I let her know, it's my hair on my head. And I wrote a poem about this. It's in the anthology. And in the poem, it basically says in the end, it ain't nobody's hair, nobody's business what me and my hair do. And that's how I end it. And I had to let her know that's another issue I have with black women. Stop worrying about how the heck another black woman is wearing her hair. That's her business, her prerogative. But I am not my hair. And she's absolutely. No, we both smiled and we walked away. But I walked away saying, you know what, Donna? That teachable moment you gave this woman the first time you had that encounter with her, it changed her. It made a difference because she realized then how she mm-hmm. reacted. Time she looked at me, mm-hmm. and I think she realized I didn't give a rat's ta-ta what she thought about how I wore my hair. <laughs> oh, all right. Let me move on, ladies. There's, there's a great dialogue. 
<laughs> um, we all know that through film and literature, um, art, folk tales, and historical perspective, you know, like especially song and dance through politics, et cetera, we've learned how black women have helped each other hold on, how we've helped each other persevere, believe and grow. And I always like to go back and look at from Seely, Nettie and Shug and Sophia and Alice mm. Walker's Purple, you know, to Savannah, Robin, Bernadine and Gloria and Terry McMillan's Wedding to Exhale. We, okay. you know, looking at all of them, we learned about the unbreakable bonds of what being our sister's keeper truly mean, you know, in the mm. color purple. We remember, we witnessed how each, each character handled the ups and downs, you know, of their lives. And they were going through a lot themselves. But while they were going through it, they were still keeping their sisters and helping them cope in the midst of all kinds of psychological, emotional, physical and social challenges, the traumas that they experienced and other issues. And then when we look at waiting to exhale, we also mm-hmm. witness sisters each other. Um, you know, whether it was through, well, but for black women, that's right. And it was a different mm-hmm. era in history. And this is what I think is so remarkable, a different era in history. But we watched them experience the pains of divorce, personal growth, you know, the heartbreak, disappointment. Um, they were loving each other. But, you know, facing reality, making choices, you know, they found their voices, many of them, and they supported mm-hmm. each other. So we witnessed black women carrying each other through the storms, nurturing, supporting, advising, and helping each other deal with life. And what I think was so remarkable is that with the two different eras, we saw that. We saw black women being their sister's keeper. When we look at what we see and what we're experiencing in the millennium, you know, do we see that same unity now? Um, Ms. Loper. That's a tough question. I knew you were going to pick me to answer first. <laughs> um, okay, so I haven't been around for that long to kind of speak to past generations. Um, what I can say is that um, I guess I can answer that question with a yes and no answer. Um as a grown up, yes, grown women to grown women, I think that we do an okay job of supporting each other. Is there opportunities to do it better? Yes, and we've talked through some of that um here this evening. I, I think where the biggest opportunity lies is with the younger generation, middle school, high school. Um, I think that's where we have to put most of our focus into and just kind of remolding them and getting them to think differently about supporting each other. Um, Yeah, that's pretty much where where I stand with it. Okay, good. Dr. Smith, what are your thoughts? You know, I must confess again, when I think of millennial, the first thing that pops into my head is social media. And so because of that, um, I'm less inclined to feel like the whole idea of being one's sister's keeper is paramount because um, you see our um, young ladies and sometimes our um, older 
um, sisters tearing each other down via social media. Um, and so for me, that's a little bit scary and, and hurtful. I'm not saying that it didn't take place um, years that have passed, but I just think social media certainly um, makes it more pronounced, if you will. Yeah, I agree. I, Dr. George, what about you? Um, hmm. I, I think I'm kind of stumped as well that um, I, in my personal life, I have a small, very, very small sister circle that is supportive um, as much as we can. Of course, we all have multiple hats and multiple roles, so we don't even necessarily have the time or the energy to be as supportive as we would like to, mm-hmm. but we do make those attempts. Um I think for most part, we just have to be intentional about uh, seeking and giving the support whenever we can. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah. I do. I, we definitely do. And what about professionally? You know, how how can we? Or do, I mean, let me change it. Do we even need to be our sister's keeper? Um, that's the first of all, and then especially in the workplace, do we need to? try and help each other advance and empower each other to reach, you know, professional career goals by engaging with each other, collaborating, training, sharing innovative ideas. So is that taking place in the millennium? Whether it is or is not, and I think that my biggest question is, do we really need to be our sister's keeper? I think we especially do at work, especially if you work in that corporate climate, because it's already a dog-eat-dog type of um, environment that you're walking into. Um, I can't speak for all workplaces, but I can say that I'm blessed to have a lot of black women in leadership at my job, and I'm actually a, a member of it too. And I think that it's amazing that I can have other women that look like me and I can look up to to get advice to overcome hurdles and obstacles in corporate that they've already been through, that they can help me navigate through it successfully, right? And then I can turn around and return that same favor to, you know, people, to other black women that work for me. So I absolutely think that we need to be our sister's keeper, especially at work. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful that you have that opportunity. Mm-hmm. I know, um, yeah, I know here Dr. George is really good about, like, if an opportunity comes across her desk, She'll send it out to everyone. And and I think that that's tremendous because, you know, so often, like I said, we've gotten to the point where, you know, we are territorial. Um, but by nature, you know, one of the things that she says a lot is, you know, Af- in, in Africa, there's always this idea of community. Um, and I think in some ways we've gotten away from that just because we feel like we've been taught that we have to compete, and that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree. And the piggyback of what, what both of the ladies have shared, I think the universe provides enough for everyone. Mm-hmm. And if we don't, if we do not allow our egos and pride to get in the way, you will be able to see that that it's enough for Miss Loper, Dr. Smith, myself, Dr. Cubbard to uh, provide for each other that support, that unwavering uh, guidance, mentorship, whatever is needed. And again, it doesn't take away from you. It doesn't take away from me. Sometimes. For example, Dr. Smith led on this particular poetry um, endeavor. On another venture, I may lead. 
it just all depends if we're able to support each other through whatever process. So it's, it's okay. Egos don't get in the way because it's not necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you 100%. I, yes, you're right. That's such, such you know, one point, one target. Let me ask you, what are your thoughts on how we act, interact, and react? And we probably touched on, on this question earlier. But when you look at, you know, let's just say women of color in general, when you look at us, whether it's in the workplace, personally, just you know, socially, academically, how are we acting, interacting, reacting with each other in the millennium? And it, it, is that are those interactions, reactions, are they positive, or do you see more negativity to the to it as opposed to being positive? What are your thoughts, Doctor George? Well. Um in my experience, and it may just be because of my foundation as a counselor educator, I experience and see a lot of hurt. And so that hurt manifests itself in so many ways. It manifests itself in the black girl glare. It manifests itself with low self-esteem, uh, hate, anger, uh, resentment. The trauma is enormous. Um, and I think the biggest piece for me is understanding or knowing that the trauma is going un unresolved, with unmet needs, should I say. So they're sort of walking around, everybody's walking around broken, but nobody's stopping to take a moment to be mindful and maybe seek some help to try to repair some of those broken spaces, kind of to heal. So that's that's yeah. what I've been noticing. Yeah, you're right. That is so true. Dr. Smith, what are your thoughts? You know, um, I would I would tend to agree with what Dr. George is saying because I think much of this, as simple as it may sound, it, there's a disconnect, there's a block, there's a lack of self-awareness that is even taking place. And we were talking, Dr. George and I were talking earlier, I can certainly understand it because once you start pulling back those layers, mm-hmm. that's where the hurt is found. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's easier to project and deflect than mm-hmm. to truly do the work that's going to be needed for that healing to take place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's yep. true. Miss Loper, what are your thoughts? Well, I would definitely have to third that, you know, I think that both ladies hit the nail right on the head. I think that as black women, we've been through so much chaos and turmoil in so many different ways, and it manifests in so many different ways that we kind of have to retreat into ourselves and kind of hunker down and only worry about ourselves and try to band-aid our wounds and, you know, what comes from that is we're unable to um, empathize with other Mm. black women and also recognize their pain and their turmoil and their chaos is basically PTSD. And just like was, was stated previously, we're not getting treatment for it because, you know, we as black people look at, you know, going to a counselor or talking to somebody about your problems as taboo. So, I, I mean, it's it's layered. This problem is so layered. It has so many facets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, can, how can we, and I mean, we were talking with all of us on the, on the line, Nicole, what could we, each of us individually, do to move us, move help move black girls and black women women toward more of that unity to that village mentality, what can actually be done? Dr. Um, George. Make, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Hey, Miss Lopez, go ahead. It's okay. 
Um, it just makes me think about each one teach one. You know, the best way that we can make a change is just to start with ourselves. So if I wake up in the morning with the sole purpose to spread, spread sunshine and positivity and empower my sisters, then they're going to take that positivity and drop it on somebody else and it's just going to continue to carry through. And you just have to make a conscious effort to do it every day. Um, that's the best way that I know how, making that difference starts at home. That's yeah. great, Doc, Dr. Smith or George, either one. I would agree with Ms. Loper. Um, start with your own personal circle. Have the courage to um, encourage people in your particular circle, and hopefully that will pay it forward as well. Mm-hmm. I agree. And Excellent. sometimes... And, you know, sometimes it doesn't even hurt to ask the question, what does support look like for you? How can I best support mm-hmm. you? Because I know I think a lot of times I make the wrongful assumption that I know how someone else may want to be supported just because I know how I want to be supported, and that's not necessarily the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is very true. That is, yeah, you the nail on the head. Okay, here's my final one, and then we'll wrap it up. What are your thoughts on how when we talk about being sisters in unity, and we talked a little bit about this prior to the show, I have some concerns and issues where we say we're all women of color, meaning black, Latino, Asian, Indian, whatever, whoever else I left out. (laughs) Do we see unity when it comes to working with women outside of the black Outside of being a black woman, do we see unity or collaboration or support from other racial groups who are identified as women of color? Dr. Smith. That, I, I, I apologize if I'm tainting this discussion, but that has just not been my experience. I have not had globally just complete horrific experiences but again my experience has been that my voice often gets lost Mm -hmm. dr george and i have talked about this before like i can say something and it might fall flat someone else says it and it's the greatest idea since (laughs) sliced bread Mm -hmm. you know um and and again that has not been my experience across the board but unfortunately i think sometimes those not so good experiences are the ones that stand out Mm -hmm. i i agree dr george what about you I was going to share that my challenge has been, while you and I and everyone on this call probably consider them people or women of color, mm-hmm. but how do they identify? They might identify as white. They might identify as white adjacent or white by proxy, my terms that I use. Um, so they don't necessarily have the plight of the black woman. Mm-hmm. So I don't yeah. agree that I don't I don't necessarily see them as being supportive of our our personal particular issues because they're very specific to us. So, uh, no, I haven't had good experiences with it. (laughs) (laughs) Ms. Ms. Loper, what are your thoughts? Um, Just like the other ladies, I can't really articulate what support looks like from other brown women. Um, I haven't seen it myself enough that I would label it as support. Um, Are we admired? Yes, absolutely. With the um, mimic of the beautiful, big, voluptuous hair on down to the curves and the way that we talk and just our presence, yes, we are admired, right? We can clearly see that. But support, I don't know that I can can say a confident yes to that. Yeah, I agree. Likewise, I agree with all of you. My position is the same. I have not seen... 
that support. I haven't had, you know, and even attempting to have dialogues, there seems to be a lack of interest of the issues that black girls specifically and black women deal with, whether it's in education, school, or in the workplace. It's as if to them it doesn't exist or they have no interest in caring about it. And then the only time I've seen them or experienced mm-hmm. the money that can work with you is if they are being treated in a disparate, in the same or similar disparate manner that you as a black woman were treated, then now they want to come and talk to you and and engage with you. But it's always with that, the focus of their mm. issue, but not willing mm. to understand or recognize, well, honey, get, this is what we deal with every day, all day. It's nothing new. And then once they discuss that issue with you, then mm-hmm. they can only want to want to relate about it. They're no longer concerned about the continuing issues that continue, that affect black women and, and black girls. And I find that disturbing because, in my opinion, mm-hmm. there can be no unity among us as women of color. But like Dr. George noted, some of them don't identify as being women of color. But mm-hmm. for I'm saying if we're supposed to be in a united front, if we're supposed to be having these alleged conversations about race and color to move society forward, before we can even get to that point, we mm-hmm. need to have a dialogue about where, you know, you don't have an interest in our in our particular issues, which are very different from the issues that they experience. Mm-hmm. And I can give you an example. I saw a flyer up at the school the other day where they had a women's empowerment conference, and they were all white women. There was not one woman of color involved in that. Wow. wow. <laughs> that says a lot. It does. They thought and, it was diverse. They had different hair colors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I've noticed also, and I can tell you this from, from my experiences with teaching, and I teach in business courses, and I'm finding it really difficult are hard to really find any black women teaching in business degree programs in colleges and universities where I would expect to see at least two or three. We're not there. Mm-hmm. And I you know, and I find it of a concern and I teach a managing within the diversity in the workplace class of business ethics. I'm teaching international management and human re- to human resource courses. And what I've noticed, and you guys let me know what you think about this, they use case studies in the textbooks. They'll talk about Boeing, they'll talk about Coca-Cola, they'll talk about Amazon, Facebook, they'll even talk about one of the news, um, you know, news reporting uh, services. And what I found disturbing is that we're dealing in the workplace specifically. None of the cases ever focus in on race, and color and discriminatory treatment and and the issues that people of color experience in the workplace. So, Mike, and I think that it's a problem because in the business world, mm-hmm. we're not seeing, I mean, we're seeing more of a focus on, well, this strategy, that policy, this procedure, but where are your case studies in the textbooks that focus on what black women really do experience in the work environment? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, people of color. So I took it upon myself, ladies, because I'm sick of it, and I'm writing a, a series of case studies for management 
but they focus in on the realistic issues because, as I explained to my students, you need to be able, yes, knowing about Coca-Cola and, and Facebook and their strategies and their operations, but that's fine. But when we continue to see large number of EEOC cases being filed every year, racial discrimination cases, color discrimination cases, to me, that was in the, the light bulb should go off to somebody teaching these courses or writing these books or whatever, that there needs to be a focus in on if we're going to heal and move forward and have this real conversation and focus on equality in the workplace, then doggone it, we need to see case studies and materials used in the classroom that focus in on the real issues that black women and other people of color deal with in the workplace because they're not... So when they give these little hypothetical scenarios, they never mention race or color. They never mm-hmm. mention the problem with the rising statistics of race and color issues in the work environment, the issues that black women and other people of color deal with in the work environment. So I think that if we're going to move forward, and especially with business, the people problems that businesses experience, in my opinion, can be major setbacks for them, for a business. When we see businesses continue to sweep these issues under the rug, ignore them, um, you know, downplay them, we don't see adequate training. I don't see training in the workplace addressing the issues that black women specifically experience, people of color. They don't want to have the conversations about racism Mm -hmm. does exist. People are treated disparately based on the lightness or darkness of their skin color, about the income inequality, of how black women and black men make less money. So here's my question. You have to go through all of this. When we start looking at, say, the business side of the workforce, the people side, have any of you ever noticed that when they do trainings or if you've ever read a case study in a textbook, have you noticed how they never focus in on the realistic people issues, especially black women mm-hmm. in the workplace? Have you noticed that or is it just me? Mm-mm. Well, you know, I, I could, oh, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You go right ahead. No, you go ahead. Um, I, I was just thinking that we're going to have to create our own case studies. Um, right. In regards to how blacks are impacted at work, um, we can't leave that responsibility to come from a white narrative case study, right? Because it's a non-issue for them. They know that we're still going to buy because we don't have any black-owned companies that sell that same products that sell Coca-Cola, Xerox products. Uh, right. Gap, whatever the case may be. So we're going to have to create it ourselves. Mm-hmm. I agree. And I, I think, um, and I'm going to put this book out there because it needs to be done. But Dr. Smith and George, what are, you, what are your opinions, your thoughts? I know one thing that, again, Dr. George will often bring to my attention is the whole idea 
of just white fragility. And I think that that um, has a lot to do with it, just not wanting to, quote, unquote, do what they view as rocking the boat. Again, I think they feel like, you know, as long as it's something that is not talked about, then it's not an issue, as mm-hmm. opposed to thinking about it in the reverse, which, hey, it's already an issue. It certainly will only help if we talk about it and address it. Right. Right. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. I agree. What I started doing, I incorporated into every lecture that I'm doing, the topics, business ethics, international management. And I'm teaching international course last night, and one of the the students were stunned and shocked because they never thought or understood how black women are treated when they go abroad. You know, they Mm -hmm. try to do this nationally, um, Mm -hmm. how we're treated. And that if we do go there, there may be one black woman within the environment and how she's treated and how she, what she has to endure, it doesn't matter that there are other women of color there There's not that are not black, rather. There's no unity, and there's no sister keep, sister's keeper mentality. Mm-hmm. And so they're left alone. They're left standing out there. And I think these are topics, even in my managing diversity course, I have students who don't, who we're talking about issues after the first black American president, and we're talking about race relations, and my students really are predominantly white. They don't see any race issues in this country. They don't think that black women are treated differently, and a lot of them have jumped on the bandwagon that, well, if there is racial discrimination, if black people are being treated disparately, if black women are having difficulties in a work environment, an educational institution, they bring it on themselves. They cause their problems. And see... And you see, that is what is wrong when that type of thinking mm-hmm. is occurring and nobody there of color, if I, if I wasn't, a, say I'm a woman of color, I'm a professor, I'm teaching this, I'm saying to you, no, you're wrong. And I will break it down, show them, no, here are, here's the data, here are the facts, here are the issues, here are things that have been in the news. But it's sad because I don't think absent me bringing this to the table, to a discussion, in the lecture, I think they would walk out of a classroom believing that the issues that black women specifically deal with in the work environment and higher education exist because they cause the problems. And that's, mm-hmm. that's really my point is that's dangerous. That's a dangerous mode of thinking. And I also think that's why we don't see enough training and enough discussions and focus on these particular issues because. And this is why I press so much. We need more faculty of color. We need more administrators of Mm -hmm. color. We need more mentoring programs for young women of color on college campuses. We need them at the high school level. I mean, all levels, basically. But I think that for women of color, and whether it's academia, whether it's corporate America, whether it's any sector, I think we do need to see more of a focus on being our sister's keeper. And I think we need to see more of a focus where... People have to be taken out of comfort zones in order to understand that our journeys are not easy, whether it's income inequality, how we're being treated, how we're being labeled and identified, stereotyped and perceived. I think those are issues, and I think that's why we need to carve out spaces where they can be sisters of unity to support and pull each other through all the dramas that we go through. What are your thoughts, Mm -hmm. and then we'll wrap it up. Dr. George? I was, 
<laughs> I would agree that um, that would be definitely a way to kind of uh, encourage and resolve some of those challenges. Um, definitely one of the first steps that need to take place. I agree. And, and um, I was just going to say we had actually also written this chapter for a book um, called Queen Mothers about the importance of that representation taking place um, at the academic level, especially as it relates to other women of color matriculating, you know, from undergrad or even into undergrad to the master's degree and, um, and the PhD and how it all starts perhaps just by seeing someone and that sending the message that this is possible, you know, and then that person counting it not robbery to say, well, let me help you. Um, as a matter of fact, the title of our chapter is, you know, how I made it over. Um, and, and we kind of came to that because of the idea of the story that, you know, there was a person who crossed over to another side, but they stopped long enough to build a bridge because they said there's someone coming behind me who does not know how to build a bridge, you know, but it's, it's still important for them to make it over as well. And so I think that's kind of um, the, the, the core. At, at the core, that's what all of it stems from, and, and it's truly, you know, the purpose. Now, you must tell me, where is this coming out? Um, let's see, when did we sign this? I think it's actually supposed to be out within the next few months because we've already done like the copyright release and things of that nature. Um, but when I get a definite date, I will, we can email you. Yeah, That's please let me, oh, you must come back on the show and discuss it. I mean, I love the title. I love it. Yeah. I love the content Thanks. of it. That is ideal. And, um, and I also think before we wrap it up, what I was hoping my goal of the of Our Voices, Our Story anthology was to encourage professors in classrooms to use that in their literature courses, to mm. be able to see or hear, let their students read and understand and learn about the voices of girls and women of color and how they experience life during, on this journey that they're on. And I think it's so important that we focus in on that and, just let people know this is this is what we go through. This is what we live every day, and it can be exhausting. It can be draining. Mm -hmm. um, okay, um, ladies, thank you so much. It's been an excellent show. I'm running overboard time wise, but before we wrap up, with any of them, I'll start with you, Doctor George first, and Doctor Smith and Miss Loper. Would you like to let our listeners know about any projects or websites, um, any special events, upcoming events that you'll be involved in? Um, well, let's see. Dr. Sh uh, Smith has shared about the Queen Mother chapter that's coming out. Um, we're right. doing a focus group. We're doing a focus group on the Black Girl Glare. Um, some research. We're going to try to expand it a little bit further um, and play off of the poem a little bit. Um, I think that's it right now. What else we well, going on, Doc? I love that that um, the folk the group to talk about the Black Girl Glare. That is so. That is so important. You must let me know the outcome of that. Yes, of I, course, I, of course. Excellent. Um, Ms. Uh, Dr. Smith, do you have anything you'd like to add? Um, I think one fun thing that we're doing is we're part of another book compilation as it relates to the whole Becky phenomenon, which is, you know, where you have white women calling the police on black people for doing seemingly everyday things. Um, and so it was just kind of a fun idea um, that we responded to when we saw the proposal there, writing it in the form of fan fiction. So we did ours um, on Becky Kruger. 
so it's it's a it's a nightmare on um Black Magic Street. <laughs> so we're kind of having fun with that right now. I love it. You guys come up with such good concepts. You have to concepts and ideas. You two must make sure you always continue to work together because together you come up with these brilliant, <laughs> awesome. You know, right now they're like perfect timing uh-huh, topics. Mm-hmm. I, I congratulate you and commend you both on that. That keep doing with like I like they say, keep shining your light, ladies. Thank, Thank you so much. Ms. Loper, what about you? Would you like to share any, any events, uh, projects, uh, websites, anything you're working on? Yes, absolutely. But first I want to say, ladies, your project sounds absolutely amazing, and I wish you the best of luck with that. Yes, um, yes. As far as for myself, I just wanted to share that I just finished uh, my first volume of poetry entitled Ready for Love, and mm-hmm. I'm working on my next volume currently. Oh, oh wow. Congratulations. When Thank you're out, you. let make sure you let me know when it's out and published, and you have to come back on as a guest and let's talk about it. Okay, that sounds amazing. Thank you so much. The one thing what I like to do with the talk radio show visibility is I, I titled it visibility because your voice is so important; it must be heard. And oftentimes we're doing awesome things as, as women of color, and we're not given recognition. We're not given our props, and one of the main goals of this platform of using this talk radio program is because it's, it goes everywhere, national, international people. We have listeners in Spain and, and um, Egypt. We have listeners in China, India, all over the world listening to the show as well as, you know, here nationally. And I think it's important that people know the type of work that is getting done by women of color, by black women, that we're accomplishing goals, we're knocking, you know, down walls, we're building bridges. So feel free, um, your projects, ideas, concepts you're working on, please keep in touch with me and you're more than welcome to come back as a guest because we need to make each other as visible as we can. And that's one of my goals with this platform. Well, thank you so much. This has been an honor. We're very yes. excited for those possibilities. Yes, yes, I had so much fun, and it was awesome meeting you all. Thank you. Yes, you as well. And, ladies, thank you so much. Um, so, listen, is that we're going to wrap up. Ladies, if you hold on the line one second, I'll be right back with you. Um, listeners, thank you for tuning in tonight. That was our episode on Being Our Sisters Keepers. I want to thank my phenomenal guests and authors, Dr. Rebecca uh, George, Dr. Alexandria Smith, is Bethany Loper. You'll be able to read more about their um, submissions to the anthology when it comes out in April. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I would like to remind you that our next episode is scheduled for Monday. And remember, everyone, it's Monday, not Wednesday. It's on Monday, and it's the 20, let me make sure I have the date correct. It is the 25th, and it's titled Empowering Girls and Women of Color. And we're going to be talking about the power within. Our guest for that episode will be Miss Chloe Scott. I'm sorry, Miss Alicia Thompson and Dr. Megna Bahat. So we look forward for you tuning in. That is Monday the 25th. Our final episode of Our Voices, Our Stories series is titled Empowering Girls and Women of Color. Also, that episode is titled What the Health? And it's all about women of color and health care disparities in the millennium. It is also based on a submission submitted by Drs. Veronica 
against and Dr. Phoenicia Wells. That will air on the 27th, and that will wrap up our series. Please check our website, ngwcc.org. The link, if it's not up there tonight, it'll probably be there tomorrow by the week and the latest to actually purchase the anthology, Our Voices, Our Stories. So, listeners, thank you for tuning in. Thank you to my guests, and we look forward to you tuning in next week. Good night, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Visibility with your host, Dr. Donna Maria Culpris. You may contact us at 866-829-0163. We're looking forward to you tuning in next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next week, remember to define yourself for yourself. Dare to be different and dream in color. This is Dr. Culpris signing off for Visibility. Good night.